Our great God, we do want to thank you for the truth that we've already learnt in our service today. Thank you for the truth that you are a greater God than we often think you are. And we pray you'll help us as we study the Bible tonight to see how that is true. But not just help us, Father, to see that for ourselves. Help us to speak that to others who need to understand your goodness and your greatness. And we pray you'll teach us through your Holy Spirit and bring great glory to Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, we did the first bit of Acts uh, chapter 17 two weeks ago. Then last week we had a baptism, so we stopped that. But then now we're going to go back into the story. Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Everyone there? Now begin. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think of the divine being as like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Ah, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because his fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness 
by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's go to uh, a good question. Oh, instantly, hold on a minute. Or poise. And Ray to, I think, face the first question, which is, why is it that Christians don't say much about Jesus outside the church? Inside, we sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we mention his name, we talk to each other, but outside, well, why is it that we go quiet when we walk out of the door? Like for me personally, uh, one of the reasons why I think I find it difficult is because I'm not sure the people outside want to hear me talk about him. And so that's one reason why I'm put off and don't say much. And where people are happy to talk about God, it's usually because they already believe in something. We're living in multicultural London where there are lots of different people believing in lots of different somethings. And, well it doesn't seem to do much help if I share my view of God and they share their view of whatever something they believe in and well it's playing ping pong isn't it and we don't get very far with that and so what I do is I uh, try and say next time I see them I'll be cleverer than I was the last time and so I join the course and I learn what to say and there am I armed and equipped with all the words that I need to answer all their questions. And then what happens? I don't say anything after the course is finished either. Why is it that Paul, when he gets into this multicultural city called Athens and he's out in the streets and he's not in church and he talks about Jesus and I don't and what can I learn from him? Only this time, not techniques as you get in a course but an understanding about God is what you get in the Bible and I want to just out three things that unlock our tongues and we can learn them from Paul tonight the first is he has big feelings let me tell you outside my house um, uh, it's a popular spot for car parking and everybody wants to park outside my house, which I don't mind, I just go and park outside theirs. Uh, and uh, everyone's sweet and friendly, except when someone comes and parks in the two places in front of my house and they park right in the middle so no one else can. At that point, I see what they're doing and I feel for my neighbor who's now not going to be able to park his car there and so I open my study window, which overlooks the street, so I can be a curtain twitcher as much as I like. And I say to him, look, do you mind budging up or budging down? But leave space for another car. My neighbor needs to park there too. Now you see what's happening. I say something because I feel for my neighbor. But the reason I feel for my neighbor is because I saw what was happening first. And I could see something was wrong. And the same thing here. 
the speaking actually comes right at the end of the process. You look at verse 17 and there's Paul speaking. He is reasoning with the Jews, but he only does that because in verse 16 he feels his spirit is provoked. And the reason his spirit is provoked is because of what he sees. That the city is full of idols. So when you see things in that way, you feel things that lead you to speak things. And that's what Paul did. He saw more than you and I would. If you and I were in Athens, we'd see the fantastic culture, we'd look at the history, we'd go to the international restaurants, and we'd have a word of a time. But he sees more than we see. He sees a city not full of culture, history and restaurants, but a city full of idols. He sees more than we do. He sees people made by God, made for God, but who do not know God. And what he sees provokes strong feelings. That uh, little description, his spirit was provoked in verse 16, says it really got to him. It's like he had a fit. It's so massively wrong that this God is not recognized by the people he made and cares for and loves. And feeling that way is what makes the words come out in verse 17. So he reasons and we see to whom he does that. And therefore what it really means is if we want to say something more than we do, we need to see a lot more than we do. And in London, it's not quite so easy to see the idolatry as it was in Athens because it's true that you might just look at the skyline, you might see that there are certain religious buildings with certain religious shapes. The mosques, <coughs> I think, stand out uh, with the way that their towers are made and their roofs, and so are the temples. If you go uh, and look at uh, the Buddhist and uh, Hindu temples that there are, and I guess in some churches you see the statues and the idols parked outside them. But largely in London, I think, the images, the idols, are more mental than metal. And so what happens is that we take good things in our minds, things that are really uh, given to us to enjoy, but we take them and we make them the ultimate things. We make them as important to us as God is. And that's when what the Bible calls idols begin to take, take shape in our lives. So we don't go to temples of religion, but we go to the shops, and that's where we want to get ourselves a boost of joy when we're feeling down with a bit of retail therapy. Or we uh, go to the concert hall uh, to escape into the world of music, to get away from the pressures that are on us in our lives. So we go to the football stadium, and our joy is boosted with the win of the team. And those things become so important. We get our joy from there. And we don't look to God who made us 
and has given us everything, including those good things for us to enjoy that we then go and take and make the ultimate things. And it's when we begin to see the God substitutes that are everywhere around us and train our hearts to well, feel traumatized that God is cheated of his glory. But then we'll have feeling-powered reasons to talk, not just to try and sound clever after the course. And then the words come out for Paul. Uh, I guess uh, you've got uh, the skyline of London there, but when you look at the people that Paul is talking to, you get them in London too. You get the religious people, the ones that Paul is speaking to in the synagogue in, the, uh, in verse 17, the devout persons and the Jews, people who are maybe uh, able to talk about God. In the marketplace, they're, they're with the ordinary people. I guess that would be the pub or... Uh, lakeside or wherever people gather and then you've got uh, the Areopagus which is where the politicians and the intellectuals were to be found arguing their new ideas with each other and it doesn't mean which group, a matter of which group Paul is in but he understands that uh, God is not uh, the one who is the source of their joy and therefore there is no group that Paul will keep away from and not talk to as he goes around that town because he has these big feelings about the greatness of God that is being overlooked as people look to idols instead. He's got big feelings. He's also got a big God. It's easy, isn't it, to stick with the small version of things. I remember when my daughter, uh, who spoke early, uh, would impress me by pointing out things and coming out with one word, and I'd say, gosh, that's so profound. So she would say, look at me, and say, man. And I would say, well, absolutely wonderful. And I'd be wonderfully impressed and chuffed. But then I'd be massively underwhelmed if she said the same thing 10 years on. Because by then she'd know that I'd given her life, changed her nappies, wiped her nose, brushed her hair, provided for her every need. At that point, I was much more to her than just a man. And for God to get, for, for the Athenians to get God wrong, uh, is to treat him as something smaller, something that they need to look after and serve. Imagine your uh, Athenian housewife telling her husband, look, I put dinner in the oven, we'll come back and we'll have that in a minute. I just need to pop across the temple, make sure that God's got enough to last him a week. And then I'll make sure that you're all right too. Now, that's to make God small, isn't it? And we see the futility of a God like that when we look at idols standing outside churches and in any other place. Someone once said that the birds of the air know what to do with statues and idols better than we do. We drop in front of them. And it's just that, isn't it? In conversations, we need to help people to see that ultimately they need to have a bigger view of God than they do. And 
it's not difficult at that point to expand what they think about God. That is all that Christians need to do with their friends. They don't say everything, but we give them a bigger view. And the chances come. I'm a vicar, and often people come and say to me, look, I wish I got married in a church. I got married in a registry office, but I wish I'd had a proper wedding so I was married in the eyes of God. And he said, my dear thing, you'll have a job getting married anywhere that he can't see you. <laughs> and it's not something that you need major cleverness to do. We do it all the time with each other. If someone's talking to a young person who's miffed with their parents and they come and they um, dump it all on you and tell you all about it, and you listen sympathetically, but after a while you smile and you say, look, I know your dad, and he's not like that. And that's what Christians need to do with friends who tell them about their view of God that is just so hopelessly shriveled and shrunk, shrunken. And we need to say, he's bigger than that. He's not like that. Is a big God. So big feelings lead ultimately uh, to what we say. And a big God leads ultimately to what we say. And then lastly, a big judgment leads us to what we say. You see, in some ways you can think what you like about God. It really doesn't matter. If he hasn't told you what he's like and you're never going to meet him, let your imagination run right. It really doesn't worry you. But when there's a God who's become a man in verse 31 and shown us what he is like at street level, and then you see him raised as the judge that one day we will meet at the end of our lives, at that point we can't play the guessing games with him. And we can't ignore him as if he doesn't matter or count. There are lots of people in the street that I could uh, walk past and who I can happily ignore and they're happy for me to ignore them because they don't know me and they ignore me as well. That happens all the time. But I would never want to walk past the street and ignore my mother. That would be the ultimate in rudeness, wouldn't it? Because she's given me life She's given me love. She's given me everything that I have. And if I was to ignore her, that would be crushingly rude. And that's what we discover we can do with God because we see in verse 38 that it's in Him we live and move and have our being. The one we keep who keeps us alive is the last one we want to ignore. And we are indeed his offsprings. Even unbelievers understand, their own poets can see that there is a connection between us and God. And it is as outlandish for us to live without thought of God as it would be for us to live without awareness of our parents.
Now, we don't like the thought of judgment. Um, it's not something that uh, we uh, think we want to talk about. We'd much rather God tells us about his love and how one day we will meet that rather than how one day we'll turn the corner and meet Jesus as our judge. And, and we think that that is an off-putting thing and a bad thing. And remember the London bus that carried that little ad that said, there's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life because there's no judgment. That's essentially the thing, no God, no judgment. And stop worrying and start joy. I want to suggest to you that actually it's the other way around, isn't it? Because judgment brings joy. Do you understand what judgment means? It means that there is a God who takes an interest in your life, so much so that he will call you to account for it. He's not careless how you live. Judgment brings joy because there is a God who will bring justice into our world, as he judges the world in righteousness, in verse 31. See, in this age, we either get no justice, or we get extreme people wanting what they call justice, which actually more or less sounds like revenge. But Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. That is why there is no further court of appeal, because you don't need one if this court has judged people in righteousness. And so to say you live in a world where there's no judge and there's, there's no God and there's no judgment, there's no justice. But let me tell you that the atheists do create worlds like that and it leads to worry and it stops enjoyment. And we need to understand that the idea of judgment is good. And the resurrection in verse 30, proves that God, uh, so verse 31, uh, the resurrection proves that God will judge the world in righteousness. It's very interesting that we often think that uh, the resurrection is the ultimate proof positive that Christianity is true. Look at the eyewitnesses. See how their documents are all there for us to examine and inspect and evaluate. And we can see that it's all true, it hangs together. But the resurrection, you can see, is not proof of God, it's proof of judgment in verse 31. And the resurrection age, therefore, is the judgment age. We're living in it. It started because we know who the judge is. The judge knows when the date is, but we know who the judge is. So it's almost as if we're already in the courtroom. Imagine yourself there, the trial hasn't begun yet. The judge hasn't begun proceedings, but we are there, and it's in that context that we live our lives now, because the judge is known to us and revealed. And so what does that mean for us in our world today? Well, it's worth asking, what does it mean if I'm not a Christian, if I'm new to all this? But it may be that you're someone who's had Christianity explained in a way that goes something like this. Become a Christian because it is the good life. And it is. Or you might have heard it said, become a Christian because you'll be drawn into a wonderful family of people who love you. 
which is true. You will be. But what we need to go home after hearing this part of the Bible is become a Christian because God commands you to become one. To change your mind, not to live with him as someone small and irrelevant. I was in the army and the army officer, a friend of mine, said, I was so glad to read that God commands people to repent. I'm an army officer, I know what to do with commands, I obey them. Makes it very straightforward what I must do when I go home. If you're not a Christian here tonight, it makes it very clear what you need to do if God commands you to repent. And wonderfully the command goes with an assurance that God has overlooked the times of ignorance. Of course he did because he sent his son as a man to overlook the times you've been ignorant about him. And he was able to overlook them because he died for them on the cross. And now he commands you to stop thinking the old way and to start thinking of him as we should. The need to change is not because it's a better life and there are friendlier people. It's because God commands you to do it before you meet Jesus as judge. So please look at verse 32 and don't do that. Don't mock as if it's not going to happen. But it might be that you want to hear more of this, which is what they also want to do in verse 32, in which case we started Christianity Explored last Tuesday and we'd love you to come this Tuesday. It's not too late to join. If you're not a Christian, this is God's word to you tonight. He commands you to become one. What happens if you've been to church lots of times? Sorry, I should have said that's the command. Okay, it looks like that. What happens if you've been to church lots of times? Well, isn't it true that actually we can get this idea that we go to church and we do things to God and religious things for God and then God does things for us and the Christian life is ultimately a reward for doing the right thing and God will help us at that point. My friends, that's to think the way the pagans in Athens used to think. In the desire that if they look after the idol, the idol will do something good for them. You see, the computer is not a god. You've got to feed it juice, otherwise the whole thing stops working. But it is just helpful, isn't it, for us to see that actually churches can actually tell you what the pagans tell you, which is that you've got to do things for God and then God might just help things go better for you. That's just a pagan way to, to think. And it's a pagan thing if it's in a church or outside the church. It makes no difference. But you know, even if you leave a church like that and you come into this one, you still see the danger. That is, I think, also there in verse 32. I'm sure there are some people who will be interested to say, we'll hear you again about this. But my friends, isn't there also the danger that we will keep hearing and never changing? 
because ultimately even though we leave that way of thinking we keep it that way of thinking and we stay with the idea that we do the bare minimum we can for God and that's enough to keep you on keep him on your side in this life and therefore we do this kind of yeah I'll touch base with God every now and then and I'll do the listening every now and then and I won't treat him as God which is ultimately where the Athenians were um, uh, being corrected I want to suggest to you there are many people in church who want to do the touch, touch base with God thing but not to actually go and fully treat him as God in the way that uh, we would if we understood his greatness in our lives but what about for us as a church well I want to suggest we look at verses 26 and verse 27 and see how God has settled people right across the world but he's settled people right across the world for this one purpose in verse 27 that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him my friend that answers the question why is the person that person living across the road in that house might be they've come to live in Dagenham in Beckentry because it's the cheapest housing in London and that's where people want to live and that's the reason why they came but let me tell you this estate is filled with people that God has put into their different houses with this one sole objective that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him and he put us the church on this estate so that that finding would not be difficult we try and make it easy by going to their homes to meet with those who might be beginning to look a bit deeper into life and so if that is the case that God has put people in our vicinity right next door to us because this is his purpose and intention then I think we need to begin to learn what Paul did in Athens to see more about what they are living for and to feel more that there's a child that's living without a parent and someone who is not understanding the God who has given them so much that we might then begin to say more as we begin to feel the distress of someone thinking like that about God doesn't mean we get bolshy when you look at the words that are used at how people explain about Jesus and talk about him they're all gentle words aren't they look at verse 17 he reasoned in the synagogue and that's how it's said again in verse 2 of the chapter Paul as his custom he reasoned with them in the synagogue in verse 3 the word is explain in verse 4 the word is persuade they're all gentle words aren't they <coughs> in how we present the gospel to others but in all our gentleness we mustn't forget one thing that we do that the content of our communication 
is command. The method is gentleness. The content is command. My friend, this is what God would say to you if you were to stand in front of him right now. I'd want to say that to you as gently as I can, but I can't <coughs> be unclear about this. Because in the end, he is a big God. And we're living in the days before the big judgment. That's why we are in the court already. There's the resurrection and then there's judgment. There's nothing else on the agenda in between. We are here waiting for the case to begin, the court to begin. And we need in our estate to alert people to that. Let's pray that God will help us to do that. Maybe in a moment of quiet, you might like to take one minute to talk to God about asking for his help that you can see new things and more things feel more things and then say more things <coughs> and then after a minute I'll pray and then we'll have the questions after that well a minute's up let me pray Father we do want to thank you for uh, the wonderful example of uh, the Apostle Paul concerned for the way that uh, we're so able to grab other things as more important than you and treat you as less important than us. And Father, we're sorry for the way that that is true. We've all done that. And we pray, Lord, that you would please uh, give us uh, that uh, joy of knowing you as you really are and please would you give us that joy of commending you to others because we uh, feel deeply when your glory is exchanged for something less and help us to see where that's going on and help us Father we pray where people have a smaller view of you to enlarge and help them to realize that you're not like that and we pray that you would please therefore allow us and give us the allow, allow us the opportunity and give us the courage to gently command all men everywhere to repent particularly on our estate for the glory of your name we pray amen, amen.